Well, uh, by way of introduction here to this uh, message this evening, uh, I want to give you an introduction to the book, uh, to this book of Second John. Of course, we have been finished, just concluded uh, studying uh, the book of First John. And Second uh, John here has got some interesting things about it. First of all, it's the shortest book in the Bible. Uh, with only one chapter, there's of course Jude with one chapter, but this only has 13 verses that make made up of 303 words. Now the length is uh, noteworthy. Some would say that uh, such a short book kind of makes you wonder if it really should be part of the Bible. The, its canonicity was brought into question. That is whether it really should have been clu- included in the canon of Scripture, if it was worthy of that, because it was so small. And some people would take the size of it and want to discredit it. J. Vernon McGee says that that in itself uh, does really does the exact opposite. Instead of discredit that book for being included in the canon of Scripture, it really gives credit to it because who would have taken the time and who would have thought that such a small book would have been included in the canon of Scripture uh, except that it be endued with the power from on high and God working in it. Otherwise, people would have discarded it right away. Uh, so the size doesn't make it any less important. Also, he goes on to describe and say that, hey, listen, size doesn't uh, necessarily equate to potency, uh, the power of something, the importance of something. Just because it might be small doesn't make it less important than something that might be bigger. And, you know, we need to keep that in mind in our lives, in our ministry, and what God calls us to do and where you're at. Just because somebody might view something as small, maybe your Sunday school class is small or your bus ministry, you would look at and say, well, this is small in the grand scheme of things or there's other things. But size does not necessarily reflect how important or how valuable it is. I don't know how many of you take a lot of drugs. Uh, hopefully the right kind of drugs, but there's some of you have your, you have your, your, your pills and you have your, you know, your schedule Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you have those little things to keep track of them because there's so many different ones. Now, how many of you understand that some of those pills are real big, like they're almost hard to swallow. They're so big. And then some of them are real tiny. Now, sometimes those tiny pills actually hold more milligrams of potency than the big one does. Just depends on how it was manufactured and how it was made. So what I want you to understand, this is a small book, but it packs a big punch. This is a small book, but there's a lot in here for us. And it's vitally, vitally important. Everybody I read and studying in preparation for this talked about how the fact of the matter is, is First John in, in how powerful and how important First John is, it, it really cannot be correctly interpreted without Second and Third John. That Second and Third John are what give you a correct balance with interpreting First John. And so tonight we're going to look at what I've entitled the balanced Christian life or the life of the balanced believer here. And we've talked about this. I did a whole series and it's one of those series that I'm kind of plugging away at and I'll just keep preaching as thoughts come to me. Um, You know, but we're going to talk about the idea of balance in the Christian life this evening. Would you look with me at the first three verses? These are the verses we'll consider uh, as we consider this part of 2 John this evening. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in truth. 
and love. Now, in this book, you'll see a, a repetition, uh, kind of a repeating of things that we saw in 1 John, although it's kind of an abbreviated format. It's almost as if it was kind of like you would tell somebody, okay, like I've already said, and you would repeat the thought or the idea, but you don't have to give all of the structure or background or, or information because they already have that, right? So you have kind of here this abbreviated format of some of these same truths that are found in other passages of Scripture. Uh, he, of course, right here in these first couple of verses deals with truth and love. Uh, he goes, verse 4, he deals with the walk of a Christian and uh, he gets into in a little bit the, the Antichrist and, and his uh, impact on the world. And so those things are repeated. There's others that are repeated, but you'll see uh, kind of a continued theme. Uh, although the authorship, uh, you know, has never really been questioned because of the consistency of topic and the consistency of presentation, uh, the authorship, although the book itself doesn't contain his name, uh, they've always believed it's been recognized as John as the author since the beginning. The expected date of the writing was 85 to 90, and again, probably written from Ephesus. Let me give you some, uh, these things hopefully don't, uh, I don't know how interesting you find these things, but just some other facts. The key verse for this is verse number six. Uh, the key word uh, is debatable. Some people would say the key word is love. But I believe with the, as you'll see, we get into this tonight that uh, I'm going to agree with J. Vernon McGee on this. Uh, and that is, he says the key word is truth. Although some of the commentators I read uh, said love is the key word. But the emphasis in this book really is on the truth side of it. The key, key, so I'm going to say the key word is truth. Uh, the key person is Christ. The key person is Christ. Spurgeon used to tell his preacher boys, boys, you find a text and then you find Christ and preach Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what text it is, wherever you are in the word of God, you can find Jesus Christ in there. You can find the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. And he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. And he says, all you got to do is lift high the cross. Lift up Jesus Christ and he'll draw men. He'll draw men. And he would tell them to preach Christ. Well, it's easy to see Jesus Christ in this text. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in verse number three. We see the son of the father mentioned in verse number three. We see Jesus Christ mentioned in seven. The son mentioned in verse nine. Christ mentioned in verse nine. And there's other uh, places. But the focus and the emphasis of the text really is on Jesus Christ. And that makes sense when you think about and consider what it is that uh, John was dealing with and how the false teachers would call into question uh, the validity of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ. They would want to take away his Godhead. And uh, so we've, we've talked about that as we went through 1 John, how important it is to know what somebody believes concerning Jesus Christ, the virgin birth the deity of Christ, uh, who, who he is being God in the flesh. So we see, first of all, we're going to see three points, one with each verse here, and we're going to go through this. Probably won't be too long, but I want you to see, first of all, the greeting. The greeting, he says, the, uh, the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. So we have, first of all, the elder. This obviously is, he's referencing himself. Uh, it is a statement of fact. It's just a description of his position. Uh, it's just, here's who I am. The elder is writing unto you. Um, this elder is a statement, uh, could be the fact that he's older. It could be, I'm 
an elder person. I'm, I'm older and therefore should be respected. My comments or my thoughts should be recognized and heard. And let me just encourage you young people to give deference and respect to the elder. To the older people that have lived longer than you, there's some in our room, they have the, the gray head and they've earned it. And therefore, uh, they should be listened to. They should have some deference. They should, you should respect them. You shouldn't look at them and think of them as, oh, they're out of touch. They don't know anything about modern society. And, and yeah, you're faster at getting in that phone than them. And, and you know more about the computer than maybe they do. But they know more about living. They know more about living than you do. And, and you can play around with your technology and get yourself in trouble. And one day you're going to be calling somebody with gray hair to help get, get you out. And uh, so have some respect for the elder, the older people, the older members of the congregation and, and your family. It would encur- I would encourage you just to find opportunities to sit down and talk to the elder members of the congregation. Maybe instead of before service, just getting with your friends and, and talking, talking, talking and, and, and checking them on the latest game and, and all of that. Take a few minutes and go sit down next to somebody with silver hair and ask them how their week was. Ask them, what's one lesson you could tell me that, that I, I would benefit from in my life? What, what would be one book that you would recommend I should read? What, what is one person that's really impacted or influenced your life that maybe I should look at? I mean, just pick somebody's brain. To talk to some of the older members of the congregation. So he was elder. It could have been this, but not really believed to be that because the Greek word here is presbytery, which means an elder or a position in the church. So the elder is a recognition of who he was, recognized as an office or a position of authority in the church. And uh, so he is presenting these thoughts from that position. Uh, One commentator mentioned that it is really a statement of humility that that's all that he said. That he just said, hey, this is the elder, and, and he went right on. You know, he could have taken some time and talked about the fact that he was the beloved apostle. That he himself laid his head on, you know, in the world today, you, you would have people doing that. Nobody else here has actually walked with Jesus, but I did. And therefore, you know, they, they would be talking about that. Yeah, I, I actually was with Christ. And, you know, we, we, we like to name drop today. Oh, I got to see. Uh, now I'm not throwing Pastor uh, Derek under the bus uh, here. Uh, he texts a picture of us. He got to meet. Um, Ted, Ted Cruz, is that who it was? No, DeSantis. He got to meet, meet DeSantis this week. And uh, so he got a picture with him. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, talk about important people that we get a chance to meet. And, uh, you know, oh, I know him or I've met him. And, you know, John could have been, yeah, I walked with Jesus. I talked with, I sat and ate with Jesus. I, I laid my head on, on his chest and prayed with him. Uh, I, I was, uh, he, he didn't go into all these details about his position and what he uh, had privilege to do. And he sat and learned at the feet of Jesus. And so you should listen, learn from him. No, he just said here, uh, I'm the elder. And so here's some truths that I want to share with you that would be a help to you. And we need to remember to, to be humble if God's given us some experiences, if God's allowed us to, to do some things or accomplish some things, we don't need to be, you know, let another man praise thee, not thine own lips. We don't need to be pointing our own, uh, you know, tooting our own horn. horn <laughs> we don't need to be tooting our own horn, amen? Just let somebody else do that. And you know, why is that so hard to do? Why is that so hard to do? Somebody asked me the other day that... Uh, they said, who painted the backdrop downstairs? That looks awesome. 
And I said, oh, Olivia, Olivia painted that. I helped a little bit, you know. <laughs> I couldn't just leave it with Olivia. Why? Stinking pride. It's what it is. So I, I, I had to throw my, Olivia's the one that has the talent. She's got the skill, and I want a little bit of credit because I, I helped make some paint, amen, you know, because uh, I was involved in cleaning up the brushes or whatever. Uh, you know, I was there. Uh, you know, our stinking pride makes us want to toot our own horn all the time. We just can't let it go, you know. And, you know, that's the Holy Spirit convicting power again. You know, I walked away from that like, you're such an idiot. Why, why can't you just, uh, you could have just left it with Olivia. There's no reason for you to, to put your name in there. She, she did that. It was her, her work. And, 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 uh, and she worked hard at it right before she, she was like, I got to go to college. When do you want to get this done? She like last two days before she left, she worked and got it done for us and, and such a blessing. And I praise the Lord for it. But let me just encourage you. Let's exercise some humility. God will, God will honor that, I believe. Then we see that he's writing here to the elect lady. There's two views with regards to who this elect lady is. Uh, you know, the, the Greek here could be interpreted either way. It could be a, a proper name, uh, but it also could be recognized as uh, a, an institution. And so there's some debate or thoughts as whether this was actually a lady in the church because he says, hey, to the elect lady and her children. And so you look, well, maybe he's recognizing somebody in the church and, and writing directly to them and, and her children. And, and it could be interpreted that way, but really most believe that it is literally talking about the church. And they believe that's possibly written almost in code like this because of the time frame the church was under great persecution. And so not necessarily wanting to write the letter or the name of the church or put that out there for everybody that might find or read the letter. Uh, maybe it was put like this uh, so that if somebody that was not favorable or didn't look at the church in a favorable way would not have any undue or unnecessary information about who it was. Um, but really the tone of the letter would suggest that it's, that it's written to the church. And we, of course, know that the church is the bride of Christ. The, the church over and over again in the New Testament is rec recognized or uh, stated to be a she, uh, you know, because we are, as a church, the bride of Christ. And uh, so we believe the elect lady is, is speaking of the church. And so the message is here, uh, regardless of whether to, it was to an individual or whether it was to the church at large, certainly they're applicable to us. That's what the, uh, you know, every word is profitable. Amen. And so we have the word of God here to, to teach and instruct us. And regardless of the, the definitive, uh, you know, knowledge of whether it was written to one or the other, you say, well, and, and sometimes knowing exactly who it went to does help us to interpret it correctly. But the, the lessons here are still applicable to the church either way. Um, the plurality of the conversation several times, like, for instance, in verse number eight, when he says, look to yourselves that you lose not those things, that plurality would tend to, meet, tend to lend it to be written to a church, to a group, instead of it being written to just one person or to her and her kids. Um, J. Vernon McGee said this, uh, you must recall that John is the apostle who writes of the family of God. That's his topic. That's who he is writing to. He says, much like Paul writes to the church of God and Peter writes of the government of God. If you will keep this background in your thinking as you come to these different epistles written by these different men, it'll help you in the understanding and the interpreting of their text. And so knowing that 
it is John's method and John's way of writing. He is writing, he says, uh, to the family of God. It would make sense that this book was written to the church. Amen? I mean, that just makes sense. And so that's what we believe to be the case, uh, but we know it's applicable to us. Now we see thirdly here under this first verse here that we want to look at the emphasis that's given to us in this book. He says, whom I love in the truth. And not only, not I only, but also all they that know the truth. Uh, Again, John mentions the word love. He describes his affection and compassion for those whom he loves. And there really is something unique about the ministry of a church and the relationship that grows inside of the family of God. Those that are involved in discipleship right now, they are getting a taste of this and they understand there's something that happens in the heart of someone when you are sharing truth with them. When you're sitting down and instructing and sharing truth, something bonds your heart together. There's growth that happens there. There's a building of the relationship there. There's a love that comes and it gets you closer than just about anything else that, that you could do. You could spend a lot of time together doing other things and it won't bring you as close as studying truth does. And, and they've seen that. And that's what happens inside of a church and inside of the family of God. And so his expression of love here is very important. But you'll notice twice in just this sentence, he goes back to truth, to truth. The emphasis here is truth. Although John's first epistle, the emphasis was really about love. This second epistle, the emphasis is on truth. So the key word is truth, and the key teaching is that we as God's people would walk in truth. We would walk in truth. And I hope you're still with me. I've, I know I've been running, kind of uh, moving pretty, pretty quick uh, and keeping a, a fast pace here, getting through this stuff. But listen, uh, we're going to get into this idea of walking in truth more as we go down through these verses. Won't necessarily uh, get into that so much tonight, but that's what the, really the, the whole of, of this book gets into is walking in truth. In verse number one, he tells us we're to know the truth. In verses two and three, we're to welcome the truth. In verses four to six, we're to obey the truth. In verses seven to 11, we're to guard the truth. Verses 12 to 13, we're supposed to rejoice in truth. And I know that's too much. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with some of that stuff in the coming weeks. But I want you to see the emphasis of this book is on the truth and its effect on our lives. Then we want to see, secondly, the guarantee. The guarantee. He says in verse number two, he says, For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever, grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We have here a promise. We have faith in action. We've got a statement, not a, not a hope so, not a I, I think that these things will happen, but he clearly states here that he shall be with us. The very fact, beloved, that these saints continued in the faith is a testament to the fact that they were true believers, that they were true believers. Those that do not continue in the faith quite possibly are not true believers or were never true believers. 
We know that to be the case. And I'm not saying that somebody that falls, I'm talking about the kind of person that comes to church and it's, everybody's excited about them. They're, they seem to be growing in the Lord. They're, they're, they're here, they're involved. And then they, they fall away and you look out and just within a few months, it seems like they, they have completely forgot everything they ever learned. Within a few months, it's like they never even went to church. Their, their dress has completely changed. They're embracing everything from the world and their philosophies and all that's gone. And you're, you're wondering, like, what, what happened? Just, just two months ago, you were in church singing praises to God. Like, like you believed that? Like, that was truth. And the, the fact of the matter is, the Bible tells us that it's very likely they were never one of us. That's what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But when they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. He's saying the fact of the matter is there's some that depart from the faith. And the fact is that they weren't part of the faith to start with. And so we can't take for granted just because somebody is present or here that they are part of the faith. We, we need to pray for one another. Over and over again in the, this book, we're given insight into uh, how you know that you know that you're born again. How you know that you're on your way to heaven. Well, what, what he describes here, here's one telltale thing. You continue in the truth. You continue in the truth. You just keep on keeping on. Can I tell you that there's something, uh, if you're going to continue in truth, you need to continue in church. You need to continue in church. There is something about being in God's house and being with God's people that grounds you to the truth. You get people that get out of, out of church and they, they're out here and they're, they're spiritual, but they're doing their own thing. Oh, yeah, I'm spiritual, but I do my own thing. I, I, I worship here. I do that. And, and also, they, they want to just, you know, go to this church on this day. And they want to go over here and go to this church on this day. And they want to go over here and go, you know, they just want to do their own thing. What you'll find out is those kind of people usually are not very grounded. They've got a whole lot of loose philosophies and ideas, but not any solid truth. They're not really sure what they believe. And sometimes they get all messed up in their head about what they believe because they're getting instruction from a lot of different places. And I would caution you to, to get where God wants you and plant yourself there and, and just be faithful. Stay in God's house. Be faithful to God's house. That'll ground you in the truth. And whatever you do, just commit and say, you know what, I'm going to be in God's house. And I know I don't feel like it. I know sometimes I'm backslidden, I'm cold-hearted, and I don't feel like being in God's house. Just stay in God's house. Why? Because without it, you lose the opportunity for God to reach in and stir those cold hearts, to, to re rekindle the flame in that heart. I mean, the chances of you getting stirred again when you get out of church are pretty slim. Outside of some great catastrophe happening in your life, I mean, you ended up in a hospital or somebody you love dearly uh, ended up on their deathbed, something like that, God might be able to use to wake you up. But I'll tell you what, if you're in God's house, God could use a message or the word of God or something to stir you and say, boy, I've let my heart get cold. I've let my, I've let my, my eyes and, and heart wander and drift and well, I need to get back to the things of God and, and, and he'll, he'll pull you back. So stay in God's house. Stay 
in this truth. But that he has here this statement that, listen, if they continued, they've got this promise that grace would be with them, mercy would be with them, peace would be with them. A real believer is going to continue in the truth. Beloved, is it because he's smarter? Is it because he's more committed than the next guy? He's a real believer, so he's just going to, because I'm a real believer, I'm just going to continue in truth because that's what I'm going to do? No, look what he says in the verse, why? Why they continue in truth. In verse number two there, what what does he say? He says, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. It's because the truth is in you. It's because the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ, that truth is in you. And that's why you would continue in the truth. Not because you're smarter or more gifted or more committed than the next guy, but because you have Jesus Christ dwelling in you. You have the power of the Holy Spirit convicting you and you have his work being done in you and through you. And so you would continue in truth, not because you are necessarily special or more gifted, but because you have the truth in you. That's encouraging to me. He says, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. This is faith in action. You'll you'll find in other passages of Scripture sometimes uh, people, other writers will pray. And they'll say, grace be with you. Or we pray that grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Uh, Or those things. Paul will often reference that or say something like that. But here this is almost a statement. It's not really a, well, we hope you have this. We hope this is part of your life. Uh, it, it's really, that's why I called this the guarantee. It's, it's, it's a statement of fact. It's a, this shall be part of your life. Because you've continued in the faith, because truth is in you, you're going to have grace, mercy, and peace that are going to be in your life. All three of these things are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2. Would you turn there? Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, just in these two verses, we have all three of these things mentioned. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. So we have all three of these things mentioned. We have God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace. It's quite a long, drawn-out explanation that I read. I don't remember if it was Matthew Henry or somebody else, but one commentator describing the progression of the extension of God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace. And how, for God so loved the world that he gave you know, love, God's love is a love that's unmatched. But God's love didn't save you. But God's love moved him to have mercy on you. And then God's mercy moved him to have grace, to extend grace unto you. And so grace is what saves you, for by grace are you saved through faith. And then not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That is the progression of this love, mercy, and grace. We see that mercy pardons while grace justifies. Mercy removes the guilt and the penalty 
but grace imputes righteousness. Mercy saves from the peril, while grace imparts a new nature. I mean, this, you know, mercy is God not giving me what I do deserve. And grace is God giving me something that I don't deserve. Or his unmerited favor, giving us more than we deserve. We gave the illustration of, uh, you know, my son getting saved from drowning the other other week. And, and, uh, you know, the idea of that we were saved from peril. We were saved, but then... God's grace goes beyond that and clothed us in righteousness. Not just saved us from an eternity in hell and from the peril that our sin put us in, but then imputed unto us his righteousness. It's an amazing truth. Mercy rescues and grace transforms. I have text for all these, but we don't have time to, to read and look at all of them. And these all will lead to a peace that you have in your heart. The Bible describes it as a peace that passeth all understanding. It's a peace that the world can't understand or know. And there's a peace sometimes even in your own heart. You look at it and you wonder and think, how can this be? How can I go through this and, and, and be so calm? How can I have this kind of confidence I've stood with people in the, the operating room, uh, the waiting room for the op- operating room, and they've said, I don't, I don't understand it, Caleb. I just know in my heart they're going to come through. They're going to be fine. God's given me that peace. God's, rest, God, God's assured me of this. And, and just having that confidence and knowing from the Lord that peace that passes all understanding. Lastly, this evening, I want you to see the grace that's extended to us here. He says, grace be with you, mercy and peace from God, the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. The grace that I want to show you, or, you know, grace is manifest in our life in many different ways. And we know that God's grace is sufficient When you're going through something, God's grace is sufficient to bring you through. Sometimes you need strength and God's grace is sufficient to give you the strength to to help you in that particular situation. Well, the grace that I would like to talk about here this evening is the grace to have a balance in our lives. The balance between truth and love. We must love and live in truth because truth came in love for us this is the heart of this book very short book it's one of those like sometimes I feel like in my mind the message not tonight but the message is going to be so short if you don't listen really close you're going to miss it because we're going to close and be done and we're going to be out of here and you're going to be like whoa wait what, what did he say? Because you weren't engaged. And, and so this short book, yet the, the, the power of what's being said here, really the heart of the book is that we need to live and to walk in truth. We need the balance of love. We are to love, yes. We are to let love guide our lives, yes. 
We are to live in and through the love of God, yes, but only as far as it does not conflict with truth. That is the message of this book. You see, 1 John emphasis is in love, and many Christians grab a hold of that, and we enjoy dealing with and talking about and expressing the love of God that he has for us and how we are to love one another. And you'll even hear it out in the world today. People will look at you and say, well, you're a Christian. You're supposed to be loving. What they've done is they've grabbed a hold of the love that is presented in the word of God. And it is there. And yes, we're supposed to be loving. But we only love as far as or until it conflicts with truth. Because truth is the line that doesn't change. Do you understand this, dear beloved, as I pondered this? Think about this thought. The very book that tells us, I'm saying the truth, that you are to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and that you are to love thy neighbor as thyself, the very book that tells you that you're supposed to love, that everybody wants to shake in your face and condemn you and say, you are supposed to love, you're a Christian, you're supposed to be loving. Do you understand that very truth was established in this book? And... They want to grab a hold of that truth, but forget the rest of the truth. And we can't do that. We love as we are commanded to, but only as far as it does not conflict with truth. The truth of the word of God, the message that is bound in scriptures, we cannot throw away everything that's said on the altar of love. All of the standards and all of the conviction and all of the, the messages of Jesus Christ, you know, there was times when he wasn't very happy with those people. There was times that he got pretty forward with them. He, he did turn the, the, the money tables over. He did call them whited sepulchers. He, he did uh, get pretty blunt with them. Why? Because was that love, not loving? No, it was truth. And truth, beloved, is what we've got to have a balance of. A balance of mercy and truth. A balance of love and truth is what he describes for us here. Here's where so many have missed the message of John because they failed. I mean, after all, John is considered the love apostle. He writes more about love than, than any other writer in the scriptures. And yet, we're... With this book, and why this is so vital, is because the, we run into the danger of thinking that love should reign supreme. When love is vitally important, yet not on the altar of truth. One might argue, well, pastor, what about the love chapter? You know where Paul writes, and he says, now abideth faith, hope, and charity... These three, but the greatest of these is charity. That's true. But do you understand that chapter is talking about, speaking about, specifically about love. And he said, these three abide, faith, hope, and charity. He does not mention truth in that passage. He's not dealing with truth in that passage. He's dealing with love. And just because a topic was left out of that particular chapter, what he was dealing with there does not mean it doesn't count. Does not mean it's not important. 
I think if he would have had truth listed in that chapter, it would have been truth and then love. But we don't know because it's not in that chapter. We know that we are supposed to have truth as a guiding principle for our love. Do we just love everybody? The Bible tells us love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So yeah, you're supposed to love, but what do you do with that? We're supposed, not supposed to love the world? You know, the world is the whole world system. It's all the wickedness of the world. It's the sinners of the world. Now we're supposed to love the world, the men, the people of the world, until it conflicts with truth. So here's the truth for you and I as believers. Our love for the world should motivate us to carry the message of the gospel to them. It should motivate us to go present and tell them the truth. But we don't overlook their sin just because we love them. No, we present and give them the truth. You know, uh, when God... My memory is... When, when, it, it, when Jonah was told to go to the Ninevites, you're like, how did you forget that, preacher? <laughs> uh, when he was supposed to go, and you know, he didn't want to do that. He had no love for those people. He said, those people are wicked. Those people have killed and skinned alive and, and done so many things to people that I knew. And I, I don't want to go there. He had no love for them. But God had to get a hold of his heart. And God said, I love those people. Now, God didn't condone their sin. God didn't approve that. But he wanted the truth carried to them. And then after he preached and he re, they repented, then Jonah's command was, hey, now you're supposed to love him as a brother. Jonah had a real hard time with that, too. Like, wait, now I got to love this guy as a brother? He used to be a reprobate. He used to be out in the world. He used to do these. Yes, and except by God's grace, so did you. And so, yes, God saves their soul, and then we love him as a brother, and you love your brother as yourself. But he doesn't tell you to love the world as yourself. So our, our love is supposed to be conditioned or, or guided by truth. We need to have that and understand that. And as we go through this book, we're going to learn and see more about it. Truth is to reign in our heart. We know that the word of God is truth. And I want you to just reassure you tonight or remind you that the word of God is true. It's an Andy Stanley is using his father's networks to promote and say things that his father would not have anything to do with, that his father would not support. And I want you to know that Andy Stanley is denying the inerrancy of the scriptures. He is uh, flat out saying that, uh, listen, you don't even have to believe 90% of the Bible. All that's necessary for you to believe is one of the Gospels. Because the four Gospels carry the same message. If you just believe one of them, then you can believe enough of the Bible to be forgiven of your sin and go to heaven. Listen. If God... 
He even talks about this in, in this message where he's discrediting, discrediting the scriptures. He says some of those old-fashioned preachers will talk about the fact that uh, if one part is false, then it's all false. Well, that's not necessarily true. You can have something that's true and something that's false, both. And he's, he's discrediting some of the old time. What he's doing, he's saying that like the, the messages, uh, like to tell somebody that actually that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, that's hurting the cause of Christ because they are not going to believe that. And so we're not going to say that it actually happened. We're going to say that's just like a fairy tale. It's just an illustration. It's just a, a, a parable-like, you know, and different stories like that, that that are in the scriptures that we're just going to say, well, those are just, we're just supposed to learn from those that didn't actually happen. I want you to know that this book is true. Amen. And at Hunt Valley Baptist Church, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Amen. The Bible, beloved, is the Word of God. And if there's one part of it that's not trustworthy or that we can't rely on, or we're going to say, well, that's not true, then how do you know that the, the messages about your salvation are true? Well, that's because that's what I want to believe. Well, who cares what you want to believe? Either it's true or not. Well, I like this part. Yeah. <laughs> but either it's true or it's not. And if it's true, then we got to take all the truth that's there. Not, not just the truth that we enjoy. The Bible, beloved, John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Bible has been here since the beginning. The Word of God has been present. The Bible says in Psalms 119, 89, that forever, O Lord, thy Word is settled in heaven. God has his Word settled in heaven. I want you to know that he preserves and protects his Word. We have the infallible Word of God that we can count on, that we can rely on, on that we should trust and have faith in and build and guide our life off of. The, the word of God is truth. Amen? We have it. He says, concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Psalms 119 verse 160, he says, thy word is true from the beginning and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. I just want to encourage you tonight. You have the word of God. You have truth. And we need to get back to believing the word of God. And don't let these uh, spineless, uh, weak, anemic Christians today stand up and tell you that you don't have the word of God. That you don't have a trustworthy book. That you can't stand on it and believe it. We're not just going to pick and choose what we enjoy and what we don't enjoy and say, well, that's truth because I believe it. This is a lie because I don't. It, either it's all true or it's all a lie. And if, if it's all a lie, then let's just close up shop and go home. But I think there's something more important worth living for. There's something to believe in. There's a reason that we're all here. And beloved, if this isn't true, then there's really no reason for us to even be on earth. It's all whatever we want to do. Que sera, sera. We can just believe in evolution if you want. But I believe in the Bible. I believe that God created man. And I believe you're fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And that God has a plan for your life. He saved your soul that he could do something miraculous with you. He wants to shape and mold you into his image. He wants to take you and use you to impact other people's lives for him. To make a difference in eternity. Not just today, but forever. And we have that privilege if we would believe the truth of the word of God. Amen. That's what we need to get back to. 
just believing the word of God and living our lives in light of the truth that is revealed to us. Value, appreciate, and look for and long for the pure, precious word of the word of God. Psalms 119, verse number 140 says, The word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Those of you that drink water, don't you love a glass of pure, clean water? You come in and you're hot. Oh, it's been so hot these last few days. And you just, that cold water is just so refreshing. I said, the word of God is supposed to be for the believer. So refreshing. Does thy servant love it? Do you love the truth? Well, the truth, beloved, is supposed to guide the love. Oh, yes, we are to love. And we've talked about love here. <laughs> the whole first book of John, the John the, that whole book deals with love over and over and over again. And he's going to mention it in this book. But he says it's got to be tempered with truth. That love has to be tempered with truth. What, believe, what people believe about this is vital to a balanced Christian life. I want to bring this to a conclusion this evening. I want to ask you, do you know that you know that you're saved? Do you know, do you have the evidence in your life you've continued in the truth and you know that you're saved because God's been working on your heart? Just because you're in church or carrying a Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Do you know that you've repented of your sin, that God's forgiven you, and that you're on your way to heaven? That's how you become part of the family of God. And then you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and working in you. Maybe you've drifted and you've gotten cold and a little bit hard-hearted. Stay in church. Don't let Satan get you out of church. Just stay in church. Commit at least to God tonight to just stay in church until he has his opportunity to stir you again. Thank him for this precious word that we have, the pure word of God that is truth that we can count on. And then ask God to help you to, to guide. I, I, don't, I don't think I even have the right word, but our, our love is to be tempered or shaped by the truth of the word of God. This world wants to misconstrue everything. They want to just say, oh, love is what you're supposed to be as Christians. It's all about love. Only until it conflicts with truth. And then the love has to stop because truth supersedes that. That's what the Bible says.